I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. On Wednesday, January 11th, the Senate Education Committee is set to take up the nomination of President-elect Donald Trump's pick for Education Secretary, advocate and philanthropist Betsy DeVos. What aspects of DeVos's track record are senators likely to probe at her hearing? What, if anything, could derail her nomination? And what can we expect from her as Education Secretary if she's confirmed? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Michael McShane, Director of Education Policy at the Show Me Institute in Missouri, and author of a new profile of the secretary-designee that's available now at educationnext.org. Michael McShane, Mike, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back. So you really took a deep dive in this article into Betsy DeVos's career. You spoke with many people who have worked with and in some cases against her throughout it and came out with, I think, a really fresh take on many of the debates that have come up about her background and qualifications to run the Department of Education. We'll want to get into those debates very quickly, but I wonder if we could start off with the basics for listeners who haven't followed her nomination as closely. Who is Betsy DeVos? Sure. So Betsy DeVos is a philanthropist. She's a political activist, and she's an education reformer from Michigan. She was born and raised just outside of Grand Rapids. Her father was a very successful entrepreneur. Uh, Her maiden name was Prince. Uh, It will sound familiar, perhaps, when you know her brother, Eric Prince, was a Navy SEAL who founded Blackwater, the private security contractor. She married into the DeVos family of Amway fame, um, and since that time has been both uh, a really active philanthropist, giving away, I think, north of a billion dollars, uh, her and her husband, on a variety of cultural and educational projects, um, and also being involved in politics. So she's been involved in Michigan politics, as well as sort of promoting school choice uh, around the country. And she's chosen to make education, obviously, the focus of her philanthropic activity. What explains that choice? Yeah, I mean, I think she just has a deep belief, and and I will say, you know, I didn't have the opportunity to actually speak to her directly, but I spoke with lots of folks who have worked very closely with her, many for a very long time, and it seems like everybody that I encountered thinks that she has a deep abiding belief in the power of education uh, to help people improve their lives. So, you know, there's a a story she gave in in an earlier interview um, a couple of years ago where she talked about visiting this school in Grand Rapids, the Potter's House, a small Christian school serving a lot of low-income students and was just really taken aback at the incredible things that it was able to do with kids. Um, and so she and her husband started on a very small scale providing scholarships to to students to attend that school. It grew a little bit larger. Um, but then they started to ask these questions, well, you know, we can only provide so many scholarships. How can we maybe get involved in the in the public sector, in the political sphere to to expand that? And so that's what led her to get involved with the uh, Alliance for School Choice and uh, an organization that she supports that has advocated for private school choice programs in many states, not just in Michigan, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So there were a couple precursor organizations in the 90s, but yes, roughly, you know, the acronyms change, but the mission tends not to. So she she was active in Michigan. She started an organization called uh, Great Lakes Education Projects, GLEP, that you see in a lot of places, that focuses really strictly on Michigan policy. Um, and then she was involved in the Alliance for School Choice and its kind of political arm, the American Federation for Children, uh, as well as the uh, Foundation for Excellence in Education, um, which is another organization that tries to promote education reform. Both those last two are much more on a nationwide level. So uh, is her activity in Michigan in particular that seems to have come under a lot of scrutiny in the weeks since her nomination, and you mentioned the Great Lakes Education uh, Project, um, tell us a little bit about what role she and that organization have played in Michigan and what people have found to criticize in it. Yeah, so I mean, she was uh, played a big role back in 1993 when the first charter school law was passed. She was sort of involved in all of this. If memory serves me correct, GLEP was founded after the year 2000. There was a big effort uh, on by the DeVosses and others to try and get a school voucher program. They had to alter their constitution. Michigan has the most restrictive Blaine Amendment of any state in the country. So they worked to try and get rid of that and lost. So this is sort of what came out of that. Is I think once they realized that vouchers were a no-go, they got um, in, very much interested in, in charter schooling. Now, the thing that's met with the most controversy recently, and I guess there may be some you know kind of recency bias because it happened, was um, just last year there was a debate about uh, oversight of Detroit public schools and the charter schools in Detroit. So Detroit has a, has a large, vibrant charter school um, system, tons of kids. I think, what's it, 40% of kids are enrolled in charter schools there. I think it's close so, to half, actually, more than anywhere except for New Orleans. That, I think that's true. Yes, I'm confusing. I want to say, what's it, Flint is lower somewhere in there. But anyway, yes, a large number of, of students attend um, charter schools there. And so in a kind of broader bill about uh, the bankruptcy bailout of the Detroit public schools, there was a desire to create a commission, the DEC, the Detroit Education Commission, that would be mayorally appointed and would have actually pretty substantial powers to kind of manage the charter school system, um, the public school system as well, I mean, to sort of oversee all of this stuff. And, and they could decide what schools could open and close uh, and uh, have, have say on things like enrollment. So it was, it was an incredibly powerful body. And from what I understand, sort of from the forensic analysis of those that were involved at the time, um, that tended to be a sticking point. So the affiliation, the organizations that are affiliated with, with Ms. DeVos and, and, and people who are sort of ideologically sympathetic to them thought that that body was just going to be too powerful and thought that it um, really privileged the public schools over the charter schools. So instead of that, they decided uh, to really work for A through F grading of all schools, um, for shutting down charter schools that were persistently low-performing, um, as well as ending what they call authorizer shopping, which is if a, a charter school loses, um, they, an authorizer refuses to continue to authorize them, they would go and search for someone else. So they shut that process down as well. So part of it, honestly, is a debate over what does it mean to hold charter schools accountable? Um, what does it mean to have sort of robust, a lot hinges on the words like robust or substantial accountability over charter schools, and really just sort of two different visions of how that should be done in the city of Detroit. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like 
she and her allies were proponents of academic accountability, presumably I would assume fiscal accountability as well, but they were concerned about this commission being empowered to make decisions about the growth of the charter sector, in particular because that commission, as I understand it, would have had as its mandate looking out for the financial stability of the district as an organization in and of itself. I think that's exactly right. Yes, I think that's the correct reading of the situation. And I think one other aspect of it that I think people are finding jarring is that it it is a case in which the Michigan legislature was making a decision not to empower this commission that was crafted by the local community in Detroit, or at least sort of a, you know, significant stakeholder group there. And so I think there's an aspect of this that was about questions of local control that have come up in places like New Orleans as well. Uh, and the legislature was perceived as not being sort of deferential to Detroit. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, local control is such a, a tricky issue, especially when it comes to things like charter schools and others. I mean, I think that, you know, what I think the DeVos folks would say, and I don't want to put words in their mouth, was to believe that, you know, while it would be a mayorally appointed commission, I mean, they, these, these would be unelected people. So while there was some stakeholder consensus to create this organization, the actual nuts and bolts of the operation would would operate you know, a, a few degrees of separation away from kind of democratic control over it. So I think that there's even sort of debate in there. Of, so is this really local control? Like, what does local control look like when you have sort of mayorally appointed boards as opposed to something like a school board that are directly elected? So, yeah, I mean, it's a hairy, difficult conversation. And I think one thing that's important and we should take away from it is that I think in the immediate time after Ms. DeVos was nominated, a lot of people who were writing about it had drew like really black and white, simple, straight line answers of either this was the right thing to do or the wrong thing was do, and here are the good guys and here are the bad guys. You know, the more I dug into it, the more I realized it was issues nestled within other issues. It's a really complicated, so drawing a kind of clear narrative out of it or, or a black and white sort of ruling on it, I think is really challenging, and I would encourage people to sort of really kind of think deeply about it and, and, and ponder the, the, the difficult issues that are, that are enmeshed in all of that. Well, one of the basic points you make is that uh, we might want to think twice about considering Michigan as a model for DeVos's agenda since she hardly considers it a model. That's the other great part, which was to say, like, I think if you were to ask her and, uh, you know, you ask people that are affiliated with her and they say, no, I mean, we, we, we don't want America to look like Michigan. We think Michigan has lots of problems. That's what I'm doing. They were more likely to point to places like Florida or others that I think have probably more thriving school choice systems. So, so that's the other piece, which is how much of Michigan can really, can we use to understand what's going on? Because they were working within their own set of circumstances, which aren't really replicated in most, you know, Detroit uh, is not replicated in cities all uh, all across the country. So that's another important thing. If she's not using it as a model, maybe we should pump the brakes on using that as the great lens into understanding how she thinks schools should work. So one of the places we might look then would be, say, the types of policies and programs that her political organization has pushed for in states around the nation. So, you know, if you look at the model uh, laws that those organizations advocate for, especially in the private school choice. What what do we learn then about her thinking about accountability and issues like it? 
Yeah, I think this is a much more fruitful path of trying to understand where, where she's going here. And, and if you look just this last year, the American Federation for Children put out a scorecard. <laughs> they were very, very transparent about what they value in school choice programs. And so they have, you know, points that are awarded. So they rank state programs. And, and there's points around who's eligible and all of those sorts of issues. But I think the one with respect to this conversation about accountability, you know, they awarded points. They valued accountability, academic accountability. So they think to get the full point, schools have to administer standardized tests. They have some choice in what standardized tests they use, but they have to administer them and make those um, findings public. They need to submit themselves to evaluate outside evaluation of the program and of the, the schools themselves. There is administrative accountability that they you know, they want everybody in schools to have background checks. They want to have um, non-discrimination law, all of that sort of piece around administration. And then there's obviously all the financial accountability as well to make sure that they are complying to norms and, and doing adequate financial reporting. So so oftentimes in education, I think because we think of it in terms of the traditional education system, we see accountability kind of in one dimension. We see academic accountability. But what they're talking about is sort of multi-dimensional accountability. So it's if you're going to participate in these programs, there's an academic component, but there's also a financial component, and there's also an administrative component. And the laws that they graded, they gave points on all all of those factors. Now, another aspect of DeVos's background that has received some attention is her religious commitment. You mentioned that her sort of initial interest in school reform and the issue of school choice came out from visiting a Christian private school and wanting to assist families in gaining access to that type of education. Um, I think that's led some people to see her as potentially uh, trying to use her position to uh, take a stance in culture war issues. What did you learn when you asked people who work with her about her interest in those divisive issues? No, this is something that I was definitely interested in, not just because, so there's a lot of, there was this kind of, I don't know if you want to call it controversy, or she, she gave a speech to a group of Christian philanthropists a few years ago where she talked about using education reform to advance God's kingdom. And there's also, I think, not necessarily her directly, but the DeVos family had been known for supporting some very socially conservative organizations. So, um, I just asked everybody that I talked to point blank, so people who supported her, people who opposed her, do you see her as a person who wants to use the traditional public school system as a means of, maybe proselytizing isn't the best word, but to say to advance a particular social agenda? And every person that I talked to, whether they agreed with her or disagreed with her, said that's not really her M.O. She's about choice. She's about accountability. She's about standards. She's never really really said anything about those things. And, and the other thing that I would sort of just caution people, so there's on one level, she doesn't seem to have any appearance. She hasn't tried to do it in Michigan. She doesn't try and do it in any of these other programs. And also using phrases like ed, using education reform to advance God's kingdom. I mean, that's kind of what lots of religious people say about things that they do in their lives. So using that as the kind of smoking gun of she wants to, you know, bring religion into schools or something is really kind of weak tea. I think that if you look at her record on what she's actually done, the programs that she done, there's no real reason I have to believe that she wants to use public schools to, to advance that vision. Now, we've been talking mainly about concerns that have been raised about her from the left of the political spectrum, and it makes sense that it would be Democrats leading the charge in opposition to one of Trump's 
nominees. And in fact, a number of senators have clearly expressed concerns. Uh, Senator Warren seems to be gearing up to grill her on all sorts of uh, issues tomorrow. Uh, even Cory Booker, who's worked with her um, as an advocate for school choice, has you know indicated that he's inclined to to oppose her confirmation. But one of the, you know all this to some extent is irrelevant given the fact that Republicans have control of the Senate. They have 52 senators, and all they need is a majority to get her confirmed. Um, but you note that that means that to the extent that anything's going to trip her up, it would be opposition from the right. What do you expect to hear Republican senators interested in learning more about? Are any of them concerned about positions she's taken? Yeah, I expect to hear questions about the Common Core. You know, after her nomination, um, she created a sort of very spare kind of website with some frequently asked questions where she made, you know, statements against the Common Core. But in the past, uh, both in Michigan and through her affiliation um, with the Alliance for Excellence in Education, those were organizations that supported the Common Core years ago. So it appears that at some point in the past, she went from a if not an advocate, at least a sort of tacit supporter of the Common Core to an opponent. Um, and I know there were lots of folks, and I mentioned them in the article, a lot of people on the kind of grassroots right, which, to be honest, is frequently left out of conversations of education reform to education reformers' peril, because grassroots rights folks are very popular, particularly um, in states. There is a lot of opposition out there um, where they think that she didn't necessarily push back uh, on Common Core as much as possible. Lots of questions out there related to that. So I'll expect to see senators asking her about the Common Core. If, when did she go from being a supporter or to an opponent? Um, what does she view the sort of flaws of the Common Core? Any of those sorts of issues? I see that that cropping up. But you don't expect that it will ultimately be enough to trip up her nomination. You would bet on her being confirmed. Yes. Now, given this political season, I have a pretty terrible track record of making predictions, but, you know, can't lose now. So I, I would expect her to be confirmed. I, I suppose we should acknowledge the possibility of her getting tripped up in some significant way on issues about which we know nothing at this point. There's a lot that the U.S. Department of Education has its hands on that uh, she has not addressed in any substantial way over the course of her career. And I'm thinking, of course, mainly of higher education. No, I think that's exactly right, and that's something I tried to highlight in the piece, which is to say, listen, there are some really big, looming questions out there. You know, she's never run a giant, complex bureaucracy organization before. We don't know what she thinks about about a whole slate of higher education issues and others. So I think, look, I think that there are lots of questions that, that need to be answered, and, and I think you're exactly right. We don't, we don't know what she's going to say, so um, I think I'll definitely be interested uh, to watch that, and, and I think you're right that there's you know, any number of potential sort of tripwires out there or issues looming that, that could rear up. So let me end the conversation by putting you on the spot. Uh, let's assume that her nomination is successful, that the Senate eventually confirms her as Secretary of Education. What do you expect from Betsy DeVos in that role? 
to, if you are putting me on the spot is asking me to be honest, and the honest answer is I have no idea. And I say that not as a cop-out, but to say that, and, and again, something that I try and highlight in the piece is that while I think that she is a pretty standard center-right education reformer who supports a slate of issues that wouldn't put her at odds with, with most people on it, she is in the administration of Donald Trump who is unpredictable, who is in many ways seemingly unmoored to, to um, sort of philosophical underpinnings. So I have no idea um, exactly what's going to happen. Will she have a lot of runway to do what she wants? Will she have very little? Will she be spending a lot of her time trying to sort of build bridges with groups that he might offend or that, that might be at odds with them? So I think that there is the, the only thing we expect is a great deal of, of unpredictability, not necessarily from her, but because of the administration uh, that she's chosen to join. Well, that's a refreshingly honest answer. I'll give you credit for that. <laughs> and I can't say that we'll have you back to hold you accountable for your prediction, uh, <laughs> but I hope we can have you back to talk about what happens over the next uh, four years. Outstanding. Thanks for having me as always. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. <laughs>